Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 46, all about bluegill. This podcast is brought to you by some of the more fantastic fly tying materials out there on the market. I'm talking about Hairline Dubbin. For some of the best fly tying products you will ever use, please visit your local fly shop or pick up some Hairline Dubbin online at their website. I am a huge fan of the products and I'm about to do a super big order because I just got into dubbing loops. So I'm going to get a dubbing twister and start making some cool flies. That's going to be my New Year's resolution for next year. This is going to be the second to last podcast of the year. We're going to do a quick one about lost and found coming up after this. So hopefully Jason will have time between the holidays to knock these out. This podcast gives a shout out to Adam T who has been catching up on podcasts while painting his house. What were you painting recently? You were painting, yeah, he was painting the house. So shout out to Adam. Hopefully he was entertained enough and he didn't screw up the painting job. So let's get on with this. I can't remember if this was a joke or not, but I had a client who said, you should do a podcast about bluegill. And I was like, well, hey, why not? Um, We'll see how much of this information I can cram into one podcast you know, I think it's going to be a short one, but we'll see how it goes. So first, I'm going to talk about phylogeny of bluegills. I'm going to talk about location of bluegills, the description, reproduction, feeding habits, hybrid bluegills, and fishing methods. And you know, everyone always says that if bluegill were five pounds, you, they, they wouldn't fish for anything else. And I'm going to tell you why in the next couple of minutes. Mostly because bluegill are super ridiculously easy to catch. They're almost everywhere. They're not leader shy. They're strong fighters. They're beautiful. And 
They'll eat about anything. So whatever fly you throw at them, you can be surprised at what they will actually hit. Very surprised at some of the stuff a bluegill will eat. So let's get on with the phylogeny portion of this podcast. Bluegill belong to the kingdom Animalia, phylum chordata, which means they have a dorsal notochord, class Actinopterygii, order Persiformes, the family Centrarchidae, and the genus Lepomis. Their species is Macrochiris, so their scientific name is Lepomis Macrochiris, which means in Latin, scaled, gill-covered, huge-headed fish. In the etymological terms, Lepomis is Greek, and Lepis means scaled. Poma is Greek, means gill cover, which is another term for the operculum or gill cap or cover, which usually has a well-defined spot, which you'll hear me talk about throughout this podcast. That's it about bluegill. All that should have been, uh, you know, normal scientific jargon banter for you because you've listened to my previous podcast specifically about uh, fish and the their background and, and scientific nomenclature that all goes back to Carol von Linnae or Carol Linnaeus. So location of bluegill. Well, bluegill are, they're widely introduced. They're in several countries and uh, these countries and, and states report adverse ecological impacts after their introduction because they're non-native species in many places where they live now. They are valued as a sport fish and used in physiological and ecological experiments. They reproduce fast and they eat fast and they grow big. Bluegill are found east of the Rocky Mountains from coastal Virginia down to Florida, west to Texas and northern Mexico and north from western Minnesota to western New York. You can say their geographic distribution is North America from the St. Lawrence, Great Lakes and Mississippi River Basin from Quebec to northern Mexico. Bluegill are found frequently in lakes, ponds, reservoirs, and sluggish streams. They occur primarily in reservoirs when they are introduced into the Hawaiian Islands. They prefer to live in deep weed beds, and they're active mainly during dusk and dawn. You can say they're crepuscular or they're diurnal. Organisms like Dandavala that are more active at low light. Bluegills are freshwater fish, although they will tolerate or venture into slightly salty water. Here on the Potomac, we have brackish water. It's a mixture of salt and fresh. Bluegill live there. They're freshwater. Technically, they're benthopelagic, meaning they prefer the bottom of the water. They're down on the substrate. They prefer a pH range, which is the acidity of water, 7 to 7.5, so just around neutral. Bluegill try to spend most of their time in waters from 60 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. They like quiet water such as lakes, ponds, and slow-flowing rivers and streams. They are in all tributaries of the Chesapeake Bay with salinity less than 18 parts per trillion. They can tolerate up to 1.8 salinity. 1.8% of the water can be saline, so that's like... 98.2% fresh, if I'm a math genius that I don't claim that I am. Bluegills spawn when water temperatures reach about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's going to be around May here. Their home range is often 320 square feet or 30 meters cubed during non-reproductive months. Bluegill do not like direct sunlight. Write that down. 
They're usually found in schools of 10 to 20 fish, and these schools will often include other sunfish species. You can often find client Gene out on Four Mile Run. He's probably out there right now, banging bluegills. And those, hey, don't be dirty. I'm not talking about that. He's whacking them with a fly rod. He's, he's hooking them. Gene is a freak about bluegills, and we'll go into some of the flies, but he uses basic little flies, and he can catch them all day and be happy. Frankly, most people can catch bluegill all day and be happy. Physical characteristics or description, and there's going to be sort of two parts to this. Bluegill typically are olive greenish on the back with a purple and bluish sheen along their sides. Remember, most fish are going to have a darker darker dorsal and a lighter ventral area. That's called countershading. When birds look down from the top, they blend in, the fish blend in with the substrate. And when something from the bottom looks up, their bellies blend in with the sky. Bluegill have six to eight fairly distinct vertical olive bars on the sides of the fish. These bars are brighter or darker depending on the sex of the fish, the age of the fish, and the overall coloration of that fish. The females and young have more nondescript silver-blue coloration. They tend to be usually smaller, thus I can throw in the term sexual dimorphism, organisms that are the same species but male and females are different, be it by size or color. Like mallards, think of the male mallards, all colorful, and the females like a a pale brown color because she sits on the nest all day. The throat of the males, particularly in the spring and early summer, is bright orange. That's going to be during mating season. You know, a lot of organisms turn colors during the mating season. They want to look a little nicer for the females. That's why people get all nice when they go out to bars. You're not going to wear your overalls and your wife beater with mustard stains on it. No, you're going to wear something nice because the females want something nice. Technical description, if you want to be real technical about this, you can say, now you can count these, but it's going to be kind of hard. Anal spines are at least three on the anal fin. The pseudobranch, small and hidden. The branchio-stegal rays, there's five to seven. They're separate gill membranes. They grow to about 83 centimeters maximum length. Most are nest builders, nest building and guarding done by male. That's just a physical Google description of a bluegill. You can also say that they are deep, very compressed bodies. They're laterally flattened, which means they're pancake shaped. Put your two palms, your hands together like you're clapping. And that's sort of what a bluegill looks like. They're blue with purple iridescence on the cheeks. Some have big foreheads. You'll catch some that just look like total, just caveman prognathus jutting forehead, like total freaks. They have a short, round, dark, margined ear flap, also known as the ear. That's the spot on the extension of the gill cover or operculum, the opercular flap. That is a key defining characteristic of a bluegill. I also like to tell people that bluegills are sort of spade-shaped. In addition to like putting your hands together, they look like a spade. Another key defining characteristic is a prominent dark blotch or spot at the base of the dorsal fin close to the tail. It looks like sort of a diluted black spot. They have a small terminal mouth, which means it's not on the top of their head. It's not on the bottom of the head. It's sort of right in front. Bottom feeders have mouths on the bottom like carp. 
and bonefish. Things that eat on top have a mouth on top. Let me th- I, I can't think of anything at the top of my head right now. And then you've got fish like bluegill whose mouth is straight out in front, sort of like uh, a dog, like a black lab. They got a nose and a mouth right in front. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com They have tiny teeth in their mouth. You'll see that when you go to take the fly out. They've got little itty bitty, kind of little itty bitty teethies. You can feel them if you try to lip a bluegill. I mean, you gotta have a small thumb to lip a bluegill. They got a small mouth. Their mouth, I would say, is the size of a sugar cube. So it's kind of small. They got a big eye, and that helps them see things, which also makes them scared of direct sunlight. They got no eyelids. They're not wearing Costa sunglasses. They're not wearing baseball caps to shade themselves. These organisms have to go find a physical shade, some kind of structure that is going to shade them from the direct sunlight. The tail fin and edge is most straight with rounded lobes. Pectoral fin is elongated and pointed. Vertical dark colored bars on the sides, you mentioned that. You can't neglect the fact that their dorsal fin is sharp. Yeah, the pectoral fins are sharp, but that dorsal fin is sharp. So when you go to grab one of these fish to to take the hook out, you don't want to rub the slime off them. What I do is I have them hanging by the monofilament. I'll take my left hand with the mono, and I'll grab the fish with my right hand on the head and slide the dorsal fin down And with the rest of my fingers, I'll hold that dorsal fin down while I take the hook out. If you don't do this right, they're going to spike you. It hurts. A mechanism for that is if a bird bites them or another fish, that dorsal fin will stab them in the roof of their mouth. You ever eat a Dorito tortilla chip and stab the roof of your mouth? It freaking hurts. Well, Mother Nature's discovered that same attribute that a tortilla has and put that into fish. Uh... Horn sharks have them. Triggerfish have them. Technically, the triggerfish is called a triggerfish because they will swim into crevices in coral reefs and they'll put their dorsal fin up and it locks them so you can't physically pull them out of there. If you want to get them out, you put your hand behind that dorsal fin and use your index finger like a trigger and pull it back and it'll relax their dorsal spike and you can pull them out. It's like a barb. So be careful when you're handling these fish. People often drop them in the drift boat. I actually use one of those window cleaners from the gas station, and we put that under the benches and use that to pull the bluegill out. And you know those bluegill get pissed in the summer when it's like 120-degree metal they're landing on. If the 103-degree day, that boat is like 120 degrees. And those fish, when they land on it, they start sizzling. There's no butter on my boat, so they just start straight up cooking in their own skin. So they they try to flop around and get off that heat. So always, always, always be careful when you are manhandling a bluegill. I remember, must have been third grade, my brother was in fifth grade. His friend Ronaldo came over and he caught a bluegill off of our local dock. He dropped the bluegill and he wasn't supposed to fish. It was against his dad's like beliefs or religions that don't harm animals. So he didn't want to pick it up and smell like fish. 
because his dad would know he was fishing. So he kicked the fish back in and he kicked it with his like tennis shoes or sneakers and the dorsal fin went through that and cut him. It spiked him through his shoes. It's, it's pretty tough. The size of a bluegill averages six inches. They can reach 12 inches, common length, 19 centimeters. They have an average age, which can be reported up to 10 years old. The world record bluegill is four pounds, 12 ounces from Ketona Pond, Alabama, April 9th, 1950. These fish can grow big. We'll talk about hybrids later, but that's the average size. On Lake Audubon and Reston, we've use our fishing scale and weigh them at over a pound. The biggest one we caught this summer was 1.01 pounds. And MJ, my client from Northern Spain hooked that on a four weight and it was pulling line off for real. You would have thought she had like an 18 inch bass on an eight weight, but it was about a 10 to 11 inch bluegill pulling her line off the reel. little like three, four batten kill, Barstock reel. It was awesome. She was so ecstatic. Um, you know, the smile on the picture just says it all, how happy she was. I was happy for her. I still show people that picture on my phone. I'm like, look, dude, we caught a one-pound bluegill. So moving on from physical description, feeding. If you are a fly fisherman, you want to know what bluegill eat so you can catch them. And when I worked at Orvis back in the day at Tyson's, we had this guy come in, and he was all, he says, hey, man. I was out at this pond in Frederick, Maryland, man. And he pushes up his glasses. I figured out what the bluegills were batting on. Uh-huh. He kind of leans back and kind of like puffs his chest out. They was feeding on woolly buggers. I cracked the code. It was the woolly bugger hatch. It's what they were feeding on. Little woolly buggers. Now, we used a joke in the shop. We put up, you know, what's going on on the gunpowder. The woolly bugger hatch will be coming off in June. And people are like, no way. Yeah, man. Like, the royal wolves are coming off on Big Hunting Creek. That was just to tease people. But, you know, there really isn't such an organism as a woolly bugger. It's just made to mimic a whole lot of different organisms. But these fish, they eat a variety of organisms. And let's talk about that. Midge larvae, coronamids make up a high percentage of the bluegill's diet. They will also consume plants when the animal diet becomes scarce. They will also learn to consume commercial fish feed. Bluegill use gill rakers and bands with small teeth to ingest their food. During summer months, bluegills generally consume 35% of their body weight each week. Bluegills, now write this down, use a suction system in which they accelerate a stream of water into their mouth. Prey comes in with this water. Only a limited amount of water is able to be suctioned. So the fish must get within 1.75 centimeters of the prey, which is why bluegill will make a distinctive kissing or suction sound when they hit a dry fly. Any of those, you might hear them coming from the water. They will come up and they will suck that thing in. And that's how you can tell it's not a bass. It's a bluegill because the sound they make. I could be looking off in another direction and my client gets a hit and I can hear that and say, oh, it's a bluegill. You just, you, you learn to hear that sound and you know. Young bluegill feed on crustaceans, insects, worms, rotifers, and water fleas. Adult 
bluegill feed upon snails, small crayfish, leaders, worms, small minnows, aquatic insect larvae to include mayflies, caddisflies, dragonflies, damselflies, and woolabuggers. If food is scarce, bluegill will also feed upon aquatic vegetation, which I mentioned above. So they might eat everything out of where they live, and they're like, damn, we ate all our food. We got to eat vegetation now. They will even feed on their own eggs and offspring if food becomes scarce enough. Most bluegills feed during daylight hours, with feeding peak observed in the morning and the evening, with the major peak occurring in the evening. There's one time Tom and I went out on our float tubes, resting Lake Audubon. This must have been ooh, the summer of 2000. There was a flying ant hatch going on. The entire lake, and the deepest part of Audubon's like 26 feet. The entire lake was dimpled with bluegill. There was a flying ant hatch, and these things were covering the entire lake surface. Normally, I'm not going to fish out in the middle of Audubon. You want to stick to the shallows where it's warm. There's more sunlight. There's more organisms. Bigger fish are going to feed on them. But these bluegill were just cruising the lake. So we put on little black poppers, and I think Tom had a little ant, and we were crushing them. Tom was using his six-foot, three-weight lama glass. I'm using my Orvis seven-foot, six-inch Tippet is the name of the rod. And we were just slaying bluegill. And bluegill on a light rod, it's going to be about as fun as you're going to get. It, it doesn't get. And when you're getting one like every other cast, it doesn't get better than that. These bluegills were coming up, and their mouths were just black. They were barfing up just ants everywhere. And I, I, you know, I remember that it was just, it was crazy bluegill fishing. You're not getting bass. You're not getting anything else. It was strictly just bluegills chomping on ants and Audubon. I mean, tell you, I don't know if those are hybrids or they're natural. They're definitely not native. They're introduced. The lake was built in the seventies. You know, the legend of the bunny man was on the other lake. That's Lake throw. And they're just huge. And they just were chomping those, those things like crazy. And it's awesome. I've caught bluegill on that lake and pumpkin seeds in a float tube with a damsel nymph that have moved me around. They're big enough to pull me in a float tube. Awesome. Awesome stuff. And if you're going to be like a snob and be like, man, I don't fish for bluegill. That's trash fish. Well, hey, more bluegill fishing for me. You know, that's, I'm fine with going out and catching bluegill. And the great thing is, if you got a novice client who's never caught anything, big bluegill are awesome. Because they're going to catch tons of them. I can go out tomorrow to the, the poo plant that's discharging hot water on four-mile run and just catch bluegill like this. That's left and that's right. So you can catch bluegill left and right all day long. Let's talk about bluegill reproduction. I already mentioned they have what's called a reproductive guild. They're garters. They are going, not the thing you put on your your thigh, you pervs, guarders. They guard things like the guys in Britain with the big hats. Spawning season for bluegill starts in late May and extends into August, depending on where you live. Spawning waters between 67 and 80 degrees Fahrenheit. 70 is about the peak. The males construct a nest by fanning the tail in one to four feet of water depth, preferring sand or gravel bars near shore. However, they will build nests in any possible substrate. These nests are clearly visible. You want to wear polarized glasses when you are fishing always. It shows you these things. They just look like just circles underwater, like like 
hula hoops, just one next to each other, perfectly round. How round? Well, one to two feet in diameter and about two to six inches deep. It's a clean spot. You know when the spawn's over because the males are no longer cleaning these nests. The eggs are hatched or moved on and algae starts to grow over. They become dark depressions. But in the springtime, they're bright because the sand underneath them has been exposed and cleaned. Spawning bed, 6 to 12 inches in diameter, shallow water. They may cluster as 50 or more beds together. And in the springtime, Audubon is nothing but bluegill beds. There's a lot of places we fish you don't see those. Occoquan, Tidal Potomac, around Chain Bridge, the Tidal Basin, and small streams. You're not going to see them as well. But when I'm out on my home waters, I mean, it's obvious. You see these things. I remember as a kid, Memorial Day, 5th grade, we were out there with uh, crappy jigs. And just bobbing them up and down, pissing off those bluegill until they would eat. And we were catching them left and right. The fecundity or how gravid uh, these females are, how many eggs they produce, make them an excellent forage species to stock because they make so many eggs and so many young, they're great prey for largemouth bass and other organisms in there. You'll see guys out at four mile with little spinners and ultralights just catching bluegill to go out for catfish. Catfish, everything eats bluegill because apparently the meat tastes sweet. I don't eat fish. I don't know. But you see people, there were two people under Route 1 the other day just using hand lines and night crawlers and just whacking them, throwing every bluegill up under the bridge. And you're saying to yourself, man, that water is coming out of a sewage plant. So every pharmaceutical someone in Arlington has consumed in the last 24 hours is in that fish. It's oogie, but they're eating them. I mean, who knows? Maybe they don't have enough money to feed themselves. Maybe they don't care. But you see people out there eating bluegill every day. Having large male bluegill presents present inhibits the sexual maturation of other bluegills. Immature bluegills will grow much faster than mature bluegills because of all their energy is going toward growth and not the production of reproductive organisms, if that makes sense. So big males are going to be the reproductive guild while the other ones are like, dude, I, you know, I don't want to compete with that. So they're just going to be eating and growing. So next season, they'll be, they're like the dudes in the gym pumping iron and, and getting their nails manicured. They're like the metro fish, the metrosexual fish. They're getting all nice looking, and they're, they're waiting for next season. They care about their looks. Males tend to be very protective and will chase pretty much anything that goes into their nest, especially other male bluegills. Anything that's trying to eat their young or if the female's in the nest and you get males that are sneaking in to fertilize. Now think about this. You've got a male who's spending all day and night making this perfect nest and he's got 360 degrees around him that he's trying to protect and then have a female come in and mate. Well, you got some little male dude, some little chotch fish on the side. He sees that female and he wants to reproduce. He wants to get it on. So what happens is he waits for that other bluegill in the nest to turn the other direction. Remember, fish don't see behind them, majority. They see in front of them. He'll run in, and when that female's getting ready to lay her eggs, boom, he external fertilizes them, and he's out before the other dude knew it. So he doesn't have to worry about guarding his young. He doesn't have to worry about protecting them. He doesn't have to worry about burning calories and wasting energy while that male sits on his nest for several weeks guarding his young. It's kind of like the cuckoo bird. They're put in another bird's nest, so they're raised. So that fish, he can go off and feed. He can go bang other fish. He can do whatever he wants. 
He doesn't have to waste his energy on protecting. He's already got someone to do that for him. It's kind of sneaky like that. Bluegills reach sexual maturity at one year. Like I already said, external fertilization. The female releases eggs. The male releases sperm. The eggs of a female yeah, can fuse a thousand eggs at a time. They're large. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. And a large, healthy female can produce up to 100,000 eggs. So she's producing all those eggs. They're going to sink down. That male's going to fertilize them. And ba-boom, you have another 10-year supply of bluegill on your body of water. I already said they can grow up to four to five pounds. They'll grow bigger in an area where fewer bluegill live. It's like, you know, brook trout, goldfish, they grow to their surroundings. That's why goldfish, you know, in the wild, they get 18 inches like the ones we have here. But in a fish tank, they're going to be small like that one in the cat in the hat. You're not a big goldfish. Brook trout, they live in small streams of Virginia, but you put them in a lake, they're going to get huge. They grow to their surroundings. And if there's less competition and more food, you're going to get bigger bluegill. Let's go on to hybrids now. I love to meet Dave Whitlock at the fly fishing shows. I always tell him he's like the, the grandpa I never had. And I always tell him that I love him. And I always want to give him a good, good big hug and kind of just want to kind of hang out with him. Cause I love Dave Whitlock. If Dave, if you're listening, I love you. Dave is an artist as well as a phenomenal fly fisherman. And every year I'm at the Somerset show, I buy one of his prints. Last year, I bought my daughter the bluegill print, and it's this big hybrid bluegill that he, I don't know if he developed them, but they're in Arkansas. He's got a lot of background in developing fish species and hybrids. And I was fishing down at the Rose River Farm in Virginia, and if you don't know about Rose River Farm, just Google Rose River Farm, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. They have a pond in the back, and I got a fish that last spring, and it's full of hybrid bluegills. These things were like freakishly big and strong. I sight cast to one and it bent my five weight double. And I pull up this bluegill. And I'm like, you know what? This doesn't look like any Potomac or Reston bluegill that I've ever seen. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, you know what? This is the exact, it looks exactly the same size, color and shape as the one on that Dave Whitlock print. And I was talking to Doug who owns Rose River Farm. And I was like, dude, these fish... I've seen this fish before. He's like, well, they're they're hybrids from, from Arkansas. And I'm like, ba-boom. It's where Dave Whitlock's from or lives now. So that maybe that's how, maybe he's in Oklahoma now. Either way, it was the same species of, of hybrid from that area. So I recognize it. I thought that was pretty cool. I put, put two and two together. So hybrids. The hybrid bluegill is a cross between a male bluegill and a female green sunfish. They're not good at wild reproduction. Most hybrids aren't like donkeys and zonkeys and ligers and other organisms that are a species from well you can't call it a species really because a species in itself has to be able to reproduce naturally in the wild or in in closed uh, conditions so they, they may reproduce they may not the hybrids result of crossing that male bluegill with the female green sunfish 
I can't really think of any great attributes to the green sunfish other than that they're really, really pretty. It combines the physical traits and habits of both. The fish exhibits the hybrid vigor in an increased growth rate and the aggressive feeding behavior. Those hybrids can reach a weight of three and a half to one pound in three years. So if you want to stock a pond with them, go for it. They're going to grow fast. Now, speaking of ponds, I totally forgot this. Most people will tell you that they don't stock their pond bluegill. They show up. So our friends in New York and the Catskills, we were catching bluegills at uh, her wedding. It's her parents' place. So I was taking breaks from the wedding, and I was going down to the pond and catching this bluegill. And John, who her dad, is like, you know what? We never stocked any fish in there except trout. Those eggs must have come in on, on ducks. So the, the rumor always is that ducks land in water and get eggs stuck to their feathers and in the feathers, and then they fly to a new place, and those eggs get dislodged, and that's how fish get there. Our friends had a koi pond in Oakton, Virginia. They had bluegill in there. My job was to take them out and bucket brigade them down to difficult run and stock them. I know now you're not supposed to bucket brigade, be a bucket biologist, but we were just taking buckets of bluegill down to difficult run and, and dumping them in. The hybrids readily consume pelleted fish feed, like little brown cocoa puffs. About 70 to 90% of hybrid bluegills are males. The first, or the fish, must be restocked periodically to maintain that population because they're not great wild reproducers. So if eventually they're going to die off and get eaten, that mortality is going to show up in the population of fish in your waterway. So you got to replenish them. You can go to the website bigbluegill.com that has some freakishly big bluegills. There's also, I mean, the hybrids. Bill Skilton, you've heard me talk about him. He had this photo of a bluegill that was probably, I mean, it looked like a platter you would serve baby Keyshawn at a brunch. Thing was, it was like the frying pan. It was just gross. It had these little fins and this round body. It was some freakish hybrid from the south. And I think he was trying to stock them in his waters in Pennsylvania. You can just Google hybrid bluegill. You're going to get some monsters. And the way I got into the fish stick podcast with Brian and Tej, which guys, come on, man. It's been almost a year. Get that 100 podcast out. I know they're saving up for something big, but they haven't released a podcast since April. They did an interview with a guy who caught like a five-pound hybrid sunfish from Arizona. And it wasn't fly caught, but it was a great story. And if you're on iTunes and you're listening, go to the fish shtick. It's got a picture of Tej with like a rod in his mouth or a box of fish shticks. Great interview. And uh, man, I wish I had some of their podcasts to listen to. I'm going to Ohio in a couple of days. Steelhead fishing. All right, let's talk about flies. Yes, it'll work. Depending on the hook size. You want to throw like a two-watt hook. You're not going to catch a bluegill. You could, theoretically, but small, small, like 10, 12s. The hook size is more important than the pattern. Any generic beadhead flashback nymph will work. A prince, a batman, a pheasant tail, a hare's ear, a copper john, a stone fly. Just flip open your fly shop catalog. I was looking at some old ones today to compare how steelhead flies have been changed in the market throughout the last couple of years. And any of those just generic beadhead nymphs are going to work. Brassies are great. When I worked at the Mountain Lake Lodge in West Virginia before the locals burned it down with gasoline, I would go down on Saturdays with just a brassy and a two-weight and try and catch the smallest bluegill I could and just put it in a fish tank on 
the register table at the shop. They'll just whacked. Like I said, chronomids are predominant food source of them. In the springtime in Reston, you might have 10 feet of chronomid skin shucks from the floor, not the floor, from the shore out. And it's just blizzard chronomids. And they're chomping on those, just getting big on that protein. Small poppers are going to work. They sell bluegill poppers. I love the boogle bugs. You can get those um, locally at the Orvis stores. You can get those at Urban Angler. You can get them online from Pat Eller's, the fly fish store in Wisconsin. They're expensive, though. They're like four or five bucks each, but they're awesome. Around here, you know, it's it's uh, Carolina blue is the big color. Those foam spiders are great. Any of those like cheap flies you used to get as a kid at Kmart that would fall apart after 10 casts, those are going to work. For me, we're going to go out the chartreuse damsel nymph mostly. We're going to use eggs, be it a bead egg or a yarn egg. They'll eat crayfish patterns. They'll eat small clousers. They'll eat the popping bugs. We'll throw the next, you know, thing is going to be, I'll save it for next, fishing methods. But, you know, flies, anything that's small and make it barbless. You know, bluegill are going to suck it in. So they are going to tend to get a fly lodged in their throat. So you're going to need some needle nose like hemostats to get back in there. Debarb it, it makes it easier for them to come out. You know, at the beginning of the podcast, I said these fish are voracious predators that will eat just about anything. You don't have to match the hatch. They're not eating size 16 caddis or they're not, you know, focusing in on something. These are not trout. These are warm water voracious predators that we love to fish for because they eat anything. So I say, yes, it'll catch a bluegill. Let's talk about fishing methods. We can divide this into still water and moving water. Where to fish for them? Still water, lakes, ponds. In the shallows, along the shore, in that sunny area. Remember, where the sun is, is where there's more photosynthesis. There's going to be more oxygen in the water. And those plants that photosynthesize also harbor all the organisms that these fish are going to eat. Look for structure. Docks, pontoon boats, john boats, sunken trees. They used to wrap up Christmas trees and dump them in the lake where I grew up and make fish structure. You can go to Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's and get those sort of uh, porcupine-looking fish structures you could put in. Uh, whatever kind of structure and shaded areas in the lake is where you're going to find these fish. At dusk, in the morning, they're going to come out because there is not really bright sunlight. On a four-mile run, you're going to find them most often along the shoreline where I call their safety zone. It's a three-foot buffer of riprap and rocks between the shoreline from high to low tide. That's where they hang out on the shore. They're not going to be out in the open because they're going to get smacked by ospreys and bald eagles and the kingfishers and egrets and whatever other piscivers birds are in the area. They will come up from the depths to smack your fly. So you can be in six feet of water and they will go out of their way to hit a dry fly. But you also can get that nymph down with a bead head and you're going to get them just as easily. Moving water, rivers, streams, tidal estuaries, where the water's flowing based on gravity and or tides. Structure and shade, find the rock ledges, the drop-offs, the sunken trees, the old cars, the tires. They're going to be downstream from structure because they can burn fewer calories, just like trout. They will come up from the deep again to smack a fly. And one of the things you can always do, if you don't feel if you feel guilty, don't do this. You got a little bluegill on. Hey man, just let it sit there and fight your fight your line. 
a largemouth bass is going to come out and eat it. Now, this happens to us once in my entire lifetime this past year. occurred on Lake Audubon and Reston. It regularly occurred when I used to fish Riverbend Park. And it happens a lot in Four Mile Run. Khalil caught a white perch, not a sunfish. But, uh, yeah, they're not sunfish. They're moron today. They're in the same family as stripers. And that largemouth is like four pounds just came out. Don't fight the bluegill because if there's tension, he can't swallow it. If you let some slack out, that fish will swallow your bluegill and you know say, sorry, bluegill. Eh. But that bass gets a nice meal and you just cut the leader. The fish and the fly will all dissolve, hopefully, and just come out and it's poops. Fishing techniques. Dead drift. Throw out your caddis fly, your royal coachman, your popping bug, uh, your sneaky peat whatever, and just let it dead drift. You can twitch those rubber legs a little bit. They will come up and eat it. You can strip in your fly, little one-inch clousers, little beadhead nymphs you can strip, little soft hackles. Gene loves the simple soft hackles. Those old partridge and oranges, they will smack those things like no one's business. Little movement, that's all it takes. For the, bluegill are like cats. I always tell my clients that. You put a ribbon in front of a cat, you put a ribbon or a sock in front of dr jones my dog he they don't care but you start shaking that thing it's it's alive it's moving they have to get it bluegill are the same way if it's moving and twitching they got to go inspect that's why they come up and eat your bobbers they'll eat your indicators because it's twitching and making vibrations in the water i like to do popper dropper you get a popper for me it's my scorpion bug or for me it's gonna be my foam depot you can find I think most of those on YouTube. I don't know if my scorpion bug is on YouTube yet. I'm working on getting that fly picked up by a certain fly company for distribution. Take about 18 inches of yeah, 24 inches. 4X leader material. You want to do a slip knot, put that on, secure it onto your bend of your, your dry fly, and then drop it down and tie your bead on. Now, the crazy thing is you'll be stripping that, twitching it. You'll have a largemouth come up and whack your size 14 Prince Niv. Don't ask me why. And you'll get the bluegill to hit your size 4, 2X long streamer hook that's got the popper on it. Those fish are crazy. They'll, they'll eat anything. I was out with uh, my friend Catherine on Occoquan. She caught a little bluegill on a huge popper. So you never know what they're going to eat. But that that dropper rig always is going to work because it'll keep your... Nymph suspended off the bottom. Now, going back to ethics, do you want to fish over the nest? You can swing any fly through that nest and you're going to catch a bluegill because they're guarding them. They're not necessarily biting out of hunger. They're biting because they're pissed off. Something's invading. They think it's going after their young. Just like I talked about salmon are going to go bite something that comes in their nest. Bluegill will do the same thing. I think that pretty much sums up you know, everything I had to say about bluegill. They're awesome. They're everywhere. They'll eat anything. They're not leader shy. Go out with your 10 car rod and, and smack some. Go out with your one weight. I mean, even on an eight weight, they're fun. In fact, I had a bluegill break my eight weight in the tidal basin last summer. Don't ask me how, but they're fun. People eat them, apparently. I don't eat fish. I don't know. I hope that entertained you. I hope that gave you some. Maybe you live in Antarctica. You're at the uh, McMurdo station and there's no bluegill there and you wanted to learn about bluegill? Well, here you go. That wraps up Series 1, Episode 46. That's 42 minutes of bluegill talk. Who knew? 
you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. If you want to help monetize me, go to ProGuideDirect.com, buy your Sitka gear and your Orvis and your uh, other brands I suggest and endorse, buy your Monomaster on there. And it helps helps monetize my company because, as you know, guiding and selling flies is my only source of income. So I love it when I get that Pro Guide Direct commission check in the mail. Next up, we're going to do Lost and Found, and we'll start recording my Christmas break steelhead excursion podcast before I leave, and I'll continue recording it throughout my trip. We'll see if we can get some fly shop employees from Ohio on. Maybe we'll bump into some people on the stream. I will try and get an awesome podcast for you. Thanks for downloading. Send us away to Jason and Freestone Media. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. Oh my god! Oh. Every once in a while, it's fun to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chase in the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.